Greetings, humans, and welcome to this postscript episode of Unpleasant Movies. Welcome, welcome. So uh, I've been uh, rereading Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials oh, yeah. and The Book of Dust. And I gotta say, it's really good. Yeah, I remember it's been great when I read it back in the day. Yeah, I think like one of the things that is so amazing to me about these books is that it's, you know, ostensibly children's books, but they are a great read for adults too. And one of the things that's so amazing about them to me is it's almost like you took C.S. Lewis and made him not a moralist, Mm -hmm. not a Christian, and sort of not wanting to intellectually hamper people. Mm. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's such a humanist work. Like the way the characters are so allowed to be flawed and sort of this innate will of the struggle of these people of not wanting to be subjugated intellectually. And a way of sort of weaving that into an actually compelling narrative with interesting characters and not just a sort of a theoretical droning of some axioms that a lot of people take for granted. Yeah, and as it goes along, the series also starts to play with quite interesting ideas, I seem to remember. It's an exploration. Not just an exciting narrative. Yeah, it's an exploration of both choice, consequence, and consciousness. It's a really interesting exploration of the duality of man. Mm. Like in the sort of main world of the universe, humans are split. They are their demon and they are themselves and they are both one being. And the way that sort of plays out in the narrative is is really interesting in the way it's explored. That's actually fascinating in... I'm reading the second book of the new trilogy. I don't think the third book has been released the yet. Dust, is it? Yeah, the book of Dust. I haven't read them. I was really curious when they started to come out that there was a connection. Yeah, the first one, La Belle Sauvage, is great. And probably my favorite book of his, actually. Oh, really? It's really good and really nice. It takes the narrative away from like the main character of the first three yeah, books. Lara. Yeah, Lyra. And in La Belle Sauvage, it's, uh, it's Malcolm Pulse that he's the main character. He's a boy who lives with his parents who, who run this tavern on the outskirts of Oxford. Mm. And it's almost like a noir. It's like this sort of almost yeah. detective story. And it has a lot of spy stuff. But baked into that, which is, you know, this compelling narrative that you want to find out what happens next. There's also like this continuing exploration of what it means to be human, what it means to sort of grow up what it means to sacrifice, like all these really like deep human large themes that lesser authors would either not tackle or just use to get on a soapbox about something. Like what really impresses me about his writing is his incredible ability to be so human. Mm. It's this deep, profound love and respect for humanity. Mm. Yeah, he's a humanist, as you say. Yeah. Yeah, he's a real humanist. And he is coming from a humanist tradition. And it's interesting, in his books, he often starts chapters with quotes from poetry or humanist literature or like a lot of quotes, of course, from Paradise Lost. I mean, his his authorship is sort of a response to Paradise Mm. Lost almost, a response to religious hypocrisy Mm. and their internal sort of will to subjugate human thought and expression. And of course, a lot of it is very, not characterized, but amplified in a way that makes sense if you want your book to be understood and read by younger people. Yeah. But it's still very interesting as an adult to read. But the new books are way more targeted towards adult people. Like there's a lot of swearing, a lot of fucks thrown around, for instance, and a lot of sexual stuff, a lot of really transgressive shit that happens. And it's really good. And it's 
the new trilogy is a lot more unpleasant than the first one. <laughs> and, uh, nice. In a really good way, I think. It's just, uh, yeah, really good. I, I was just thinking about how good it is when I'm reading it and how, how much it sort of contrasts to C.S. Lewis as a children's writer and thinker and sort of philosopher in the way that, you know, in C.S. Lewis, there's this famous passage in one of the books that Susan, I think is her name, one yeah, of the Pevensey children, she can't go back to Narnia because she started to get interested in makeup and boys, right? And so she has this fall from grace. Mm. And you have these same ideas in Philip Pullman's work, like this fall from grace and this Christian iconography and symbolism. And it's subverted in a really interesting way that is more focused on human integrity, I guess you would call it, as opposed to high standing moralism. It's interesting to hear you say how his authorship has developed, because, you know, it's been so many years since I read the books, but I seem to recall that, that there was a development if not in style and maybe of tone, like the last book was quite different. I mean, it was a much larger book and like the first two books, the greats, but they kind of, I mean, there were, as far as I remember, the young adult tome wasn't really a thing at that time. No, but it but was, was super kind young of, adult to begin with, yeah. Yeah, but it starts off with that kind of a similar, like, I'd say chosen one type narrative yeah, of totally. exploring fantastic worlds and then it kind of develops into something that's not exactly science fiction, but exploring ideas and concepts in a way. Yeah, and, and also it becomes a lot darker, like the way yeah. the first book ends mm. on a quite dark note. Yeah. And then the next book is darker still. And mm. then the last book is like really quite, actually the ending of the trilogy is quite sad mm. and depressing. Mm. I won't spoil anything, but it's not a, like a classical happy ending at all. And it makes you think and it makes yeah. you're left yeah. with something. That's the thing, because at least the first one was more of an exciting journey with a good take on that sort of stuff. The second one starts to break the boundaries a bit. It starts to do things that a bit unusual. You wouldn't expect it. It crosses worlds. Yeah, and you lose a lot of these mentor characters. They're not there, like the main characters separate from them. Yeah. It sort of has to grow as a person mm. and become independent human. And the book I'm reading now is The Secret Commonwealth, mm -hmm. which is book two of The Book of Dust. And it reminds me a lot of Ursula K. Le Guin oh, yeah. in her Earthsea series of books. And that also starts with a trilogy. And then on her fourth book, I think, she really subverts one of the major characters of that series and really subverts almost the trope of fantasy literature by focusing more on sort of the female experience and... What happens after the sort of fantasy story is done? Mm, that's nice. And it's really interesting. And a lot of people hated that book. Tahanu, I think it's called. Mm. She's the main character too. And the book I'm reading now, The Secret Commonwealth, it's reminding me a lot of that because it's taking sort of this almost heroic character from the previous books and really exploring the consequences mm. of everything that's happened and how incredibly difficult it is to adjust I seem to remember when these books came out. I'm not sure if it was the first or the second Dust book, but there was like an explicit reference to some of the characters from his Dark Materials or something. Because I hadn't registered that they were part of the same work. Because there was a, many years between like the last book of his Dark Materials. And he did some other sorts of stuff, which wasn't part of that universe as far as I, I haven't read it. Yeah, he's done some other like minor stuff that's set in the same universe. But The Book of Dust is set in the same universe mm. and it's sort of a... But was that explicit when it came out? I thought that was kind of like something that you understood. As no, no, a... no, it's very explicit. Okay. It's very explicit. Okay. The first book is sort of a prequel almost. It has a lot of the same characters, but a lot of backstory. But it's its own story in its own right. And then the second book is sort of after the original trilogy. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. It's sort of meant to be a sort of 
stand aside like it's it's not mm. meant to be like, it's not a sequel it's not a prequel and it's not a sequel mm. it's sort of both and yeah. none of them and also sort of a exploration of the consequences of the first trilogy in a way that's really interesting and i, I find mm. it's it's really good literature like a lot of it it's beautifully written it's really really what? nice and the the sort of selection of quotes and stuff also really illuminates the text in a way that i find very enjoyable I think the third book of the his dark materials was shortlisted for the Booker Prize or something. Like some it's great, really prestigious. Uh, I mean, fantasy literature typically doesn't. <laughs> no, but like especially the third book is really delving into almost classical Greek myth territory, mm -hmm. and focuses on a lot of the same themes and stuff. Mm -hmm. Obviously, from a more detailed modern narrative, but it does have some really major like theological and mythological and humanist and philosophical ideas that it really it's not window dressing like it's central to the story yeah. in a way that feels very serious literature even if it is like i said sensibly targeted towards younger adults i mean it is targeted towards them but it's really good too <laughs> so have you checked out the series i have yeah i watched both seasons i haven't seen the second i started a little bit in the there are some really good things about the new season and some bad things. I would say the best thing is probably the character of Claire Malone. She's really well cast okay. in the second season. I haven't so, gotten there yet. So she's, she's just uh, a joy in the second season. Um, there are some good things, but generally, I don't know. I, I feel like it abridges a lot of stuff that's really interesting and makes it way less interesting. Mm. And uh, it's sort of... It's not a great adaptation, yeah. but I think it's worth seeing. Well, I feel like I want to like it more than I do. Like, the production is beautiful. There's a lot of things about it that... I think the production is less good in season two, too. So oh, really? there's a lot of, in my opinion, really boring locations. Okay. When in the book, there's a lot of, like, interesting locations oh. and stuff. And they choose to, like, make that more. I guess part of the thought process is, like, you want to make it more realistic or mm. gritty or whatever. But it just comes across as more boring. And that's stuff I don't like. There is good stuff too. Like there is good production and good sets and good costumes and stuff. From the first season, I felt like there were some scenes that were really well adapted. Like the fight between Ioric and the other. Um, yeah, yeah. It was really well done and it managed to do some things really well. And the cast is really good. And I was trying to figure what was it that kind of puts me off a little bit. Because like I said, I feel like I should like it more than I do. Coincidentally, funny we were talking about C.S. Lewis because on YouTube I was just watching like the old Narnia series. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, it doesn't have great production value. But it's so well cast. It's well cast, but it's also tonally really good. Yeah. And that's the thing that's so much of how film and television directed towards young or kid audiences there's something patronizing about it. Yeah. There's something a little bit, not sentimental exactly, but I find it kind of off-putting in a way. And like the old Narnia series doesn't really do that. It's quite straightforward in a way. The acting is very kind of clear and open and honest. Well, it's a classical BBC production. Yeah. And it really has the hallmarks of that, which is kind of terrible costumes and effects and stuff, but usually very good acting and casting. Whilst like the later films of C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of films. They're in the same mode, I think, as His Dark Materials, yeah. where they're pandering, in a sense. Uh, yeah, and it does... I don't know what it is specifically. It's hard to put yeah. your finger on, but it does feel a lot more patronizing than the books. And the thing that's annoying is a lot of the actors in His Dark Materials, the really good actors, like the girl who plays Lyra, she's in that Logan... Yeah, uh, she's film. not bad, but I think the way Lyra is written in the series... It's really well, not very engaging. I, I think if you look at her previous role where she kind of had a breakthrough in the, the Logan uh, superhero film, she's really ferocious, she's really intense, she 
has like an uh, energy that's really raw. And writing is one thing, but I just, I think it's a matter of direction and style because they've kind of taken this actor who can do that really well, which fits Lara well, I think, and not, not one-to-one, but it, it has that energy. And they've kind of toned it down and they kind of put it in a square peg in a sense. Yeah, I mean, she feels super passive. Yeah. And I, that's what I mean. Like, it's the way the writing is adapted, the choices that they made and what lines to keep and what lines not to keep and what... But also the direction, like... Yeah, it, the direction, too. It is pandering. It, it is feels, passive. It feels passive. And mm-hmm. that's certainly one of the things the character does not feel like in the books. Yeah. She feels incredibly... And I love that, too, by the way that she is this female character that she has so much agency, Mm. right? Stuff doesn't happen to her. She makes almost everything around her happen. She has so much agency. Mm. And in the series, that's not really something you think about at all. It doesn't come through. And I think that's because, you know, it's kind of... I don't think it's the actor's fault. I think she's great. No, I mean, I feel like... Because there are many other really good actors. And, you know, some of the roles work fine. But I feel, generally speaking, there's something a bit tropey about how it relates to its characters. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I kind of found a bit weird was, you know, the Egyptians who, who live in the boats and stuff. In the series, they're kind of like East Enders type soap opera style, which is a little bit off. And I don't really like that kind of... Why would you put that kind of East London style? And it's a bit soapy. And I don't know, it feels off. It doesn't seem like they've thought about why they're doing what they're doing well enough. Yeah, I think it's a bit weird. Like in the books, that culture is quite interesting because it's a mix of that sort of British lower class gypsy culture and Mm -hmm. stuff. But also it's mixed with this low country, Netherlands, Holland uh, thing. And this sort of marshy area between like the geography isn't quite the same Mm -hmm. in that world. And it's a lot more interesting and more nuanced and its own thing. Whereas in in the series, it's it's just like, it feels tropey as fuck, right? And not not very interesting. It is a shame. A lot of it feels just simplified and dumbed down. Mm. Even though you can see they put a lot of effort into large parts of it. Some parts are just, it feels like they just went for the safest options a lot of the times. Well, you know, as I said, I just started watching the second season. I thought it started pretty well. And I was kind of hopeful that I might really like it. I thought the guy who plays Will seems quite good. I had an idea that maybe the acting was going to be less uh, pandering. But, uh, well... (laughs) You haven't inspired me to watch more necessarily. No, I probably see. I, it, but, I mean, yeah. I was entertained. I mean, and also interested just to see the way they adapted it, which is always interesting. Like mm. the shot for shot remake of Psycho. Yeah, like yeah. you want to see what works and what doesn't, and, and how they sort of pull this thing together. It's like in the Piano Teacher. It sort of plays a lot of the right notes mm. and doesn't really reach doesn't the same feeling. emotional depths. Doesn't have the correct feel. Mm. And I don't know who exactly to put the blame on, but just doesn't do it for me. I've been, uh, I was watching another series, which coincidentally did kids really well, I thought. Which is quite fun, which you might like, I think. It's called Raised by Wolves. And it's kind of a sci-fi thing. It starts off with a small ship with two androids landing on a planet and they kind of grow human kids. The idea is to build up a new society that's without any religion, you know, an ideal society. Things don't really pan out as they want. I'm not going to spoil any plot things, but it gets progressively weirder as it goes along the series and in a really nice way. Yeah, I've heard about it. I've been meaning to watch it, actually. And it's great. Towards the end, I I was really enjoying it. And, you know, it reminds me at times uh, a lot of Dark Souls. There's some things that are just really... Like there's a character who has like a, a bucket for a head and he's just almost straight plucked out of Dark Souls, (laughs) I think. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. And that's kind of fun, weird... 
nicely made. It's like a Ridley Scott production. He's directed a couple of episodes. I think maybe his son or something directed uh, an episode or something. But anyway, it's pretty cool. Very entertaining. I'm looking forward to what they do more with that. I'm sold. We're making this show. We pitched it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, what have you been playing then otherwise? I've just been playing a lot of piano lately. Oh, really? Yeah. I just, uh, my piano is so out of tune now, but I'm having just a lot of fun making melodies, making this very, very short sort of melodic stuff. And I record them and I just forget about them. Mm. I don't want to think about them. Mm. Then later, I can just scroll through this endless list of small <laughs> melodic themes and ideas and just pick out what I actually like and what's good and what's... Like, because it makes you a lot more objective. And I like that way of working where you can actually be a bit less objective about your creative works. Mm. Um, That's nice. I like that. You have that... There's a Neil Young quote that's like, when you hit something you like about a song, like, you got to work till it's done. You got to finish that shit immediately. And I'm like, completely the opposite. Once I hit something I like, I'm like, go hide that shit away and forget about <laughs> okay. it for at least like a month yeah. before you review it again. And then you're a little more objective about mm. its actual qualities. I'm having a lot of fun with that. Have you like picked up some of these later on and adapted it or used it in any way? Or do you have like a, an idea of what it can be used for? Or? Yeah, it is a technique I've used for a long time, but just lately I've been doing a lot on piano and really using it actively. But usually, yeah, I have an immense backlog of these small snippets right, of nice. stuff on guitar and just humming if I'm like walking home late one night when I'm like on the last bus home from town and I'm like slightly drunk. And I have a good idea, like I'm walking through the dark graveyard and humming some shit to myself. Usually when I listen back to that shit, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, sometimes there's this kernel of a good thing and uh, it's worth, you know, hammering into an actual song. And sometimes they're just nice to have on their own. It doesn't need to be a whole song. Like sometimes just a sentence can be interesting. Like a little musical snippet can be interesting too. It doesn't have to be a whole gigantic thing. Like you don't have to write an opera. You can write a, a shorter, small play or even just a, an article, right? Yeah, that's true. Your description uh, conjured up in my mind a memory of this musician. He had an album produced by Frank Zappa and he basically just sounds like a drunk loudmouth. He's called uh, Old yeah. Man Fisher. Oh, I think it was Captain Beefheart you were going no. to talk about. <laughs> no, no, because Captain Beefheart is a legitimate musician, right? He's really good. But this guy is he's just Old Man Fisher. He has a broken, old, drunk voice. And it's really weird. It's really funny. It's really charismatic. It's musically not sound. Yeah. And Zappa, I think, I don't know how he discovered this guy, but, you know, he made an album, produced this album for him. And it's it's really fun and weird and really enjoyable, but, you know, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Old Man Fisher. Yeah. It's an obscure bit of music trivia. Yeah. I like Zappa's sort of approach to, to the humoristic side of music, to seeing the real musical qualities of weird sometimes unapproachably weird stuff. Even though his own music was often like super well thought out, arranged, yeah. produced, mm. you know, he used all of the finest musicians mm. to a point where it was like iconic to be a part of Frank Zappa's band. Was yeah, like that was a, a real prestigious. badge of honor, right? Yeah. I remember Steve Vai talking about when he was auditioning to play in Frank Zappa's band and he had to like write out the score for this just insane bullshit solo that Frank Zappa wrote. And he did it and turned it in. It's like, I don't know. If, I, I may be totally butchering this story, by the way. But And he turned it in and Frank Zappa was like, yeah, I don't know about this. I heard Linda Ronstadt is looking for a guitarist. And he's like, what? Yeah, he was hired eventually. And <laughs> made some 
I don't even like him as a guitar player, but he's a good raconteur, storyteller. What about you? Have you listened a lot to Sapo? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a deep knowledge of Sapo, you know, Hot Rats and those classic stuff. Hot Rats is great. It's really good. He's really funny and weird and, you know, a virtuoso, as you say. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's interesting. Sometimes I think the most interesting thing is like other musicians who are like really square and how they're related because you can't say it's bad. They often seem a bit uncomfortable. They're put off by how this geniusly talented guy who does this weird shit and then breaks the rules in absurd ways, you know, talking about pissing on snow. and. Yeah, I think a lot of the most common critiques are like reasons for not getting into Sapa. It's like it's so juvenile humor. Like there's too much humor there's too much weird bullshit, but especially like they don't appreciate the humoristic elements of mm. it or don't find that kind of stuff funny. Mm. And I, I, if you don't find that stuff funny, you would have a hard time listening well, I, to I it. think you can find, I mean, he's done so much and there are definitely aspects of his music, you know, instrumental stuff. I think basically anyone can find something that you can listen to and enjoy. Yeah, and he has so much different stuff. Like you have mm. really good moody pieces of music too. Like it's mm. not just fucking xylophones and farts, <laughs> yeah. although a lot of it is. That could have been the song of his xylophones and yeah. farts. And he did like some classical composing and stuff. Yeah, He did a lot of stuff and uh, his catalog is great actually. He's such an enthusiast. That's what I like about him. He's yeah, like, yeah. as a character, he's like very vibrant. Yeah, super exuberant and just uh, a real character for sure, for sure. <laughs> Actually, I, there was a, he testified to the US Senate or something, I think, or it was a trial on, on censorship. Mm. And he's incredibly articulate yeah. and, and, and pleasant to listen to speaking about music and censorship and what the function of music is. Really interesting to hear his viewpoints. He was an incredibly intelligent man. Mm. Yeah, very bright. Interesting to listen to, I agree. Yeah, I like us. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> no, nothing. <laughs> I'm just joshing with you. But uh, my name's not Josh. It is now. <laughs> That's a good expression, joshing with you. Yeah. What other names would you use? I don't know. Bent. It's just bent with you. It's funny when, when a name kind of becomes an expression of something. Yeah, like Karen? Yeah. You're such a Karen. Yeah. I found that a bit uncomfortable because it's such a derogatory in a way. But like in Norwegian, we have the name Harry. It means it's a bit doofus. It's gentler, I guess. It's a bit like chavy or like, yeah, it's chav or, or like it denotes a sort of low culture, yeah. like low row sort of car enthusiast. There's something or, silly about it. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's pretty harmless. Yeah. Like you wouldn't feel hurt if somebody called you that. Yeah, it's not a harsh insult in itself, I think. And Karen is very, you know, it's a phenomena that I, I acknowledge, but using a name in that way, it has just aspects well, of... Well, I think um, it's very correct to criticize that sort of... Yeah. Well, often it's entitlement, right? Mm. This sense of entitlement that a lot of especially white, well-to-do women feel they have and do have this sort of power in and freedom from consequences that a lot of other people just aren't lucky enough to have. So I think it's well worth critiquing those sort of... Yeah. So you have all these really extreme examples from YouTube when you see yeah, like just acting out insane so people. disgusting. But yeah, I don't know. If you're named Karen, you're probably not a horrible person. So <laughs> I don't know. I am, I'm neutral on the subject. Yeah. Well, um, I guess that's it for now. Uh, yeah. That's it for now. We've uh, had a good talk and uh, hope you've enjoyed listening to us. Um, if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com or you can check out our Instagram. It's also unpleasantmovies. Uh, the music for this episode was 
made by Emilium. That's Svaro Ogor and you scanning. With that, I say adieu and uh, Auf Wiedersehen. See ya. Bye bye. bye.